It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to Stephen Bush and John Ellidge about poll results in Scotland. Then Tozin Thompson, Ian Steadman and I look at a fossil that's rewriting the history of human evolution. There are now two months to go until the general election, and I'm joined by Stephen Bush, our new Staggers editor, and John Ellidge, editor of Citymetric, to discuss the latest politics news. Um, John, strong opinions needed. How do you feel about David Cameron's announcement that he'll only do one debate, he has to have 7,000 people there, everyone he's ever met, anyone who's ever been interested in politics, and that's it, he's not going to go head-to-head with Ed Miliband, he just won't, okay? If I was capable of sound effects, this would be the moment I'd be doing the sound effect for a chicken. Go on, have a go. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> You've made a wrong fearing back. I really have. Wrong it's, um, back. it's transparently that they've just looked at it and decided that the... There is a short-term downside and there's going to be a couple of days of conversation uh, suggesting things like I just said, that he's a bit of a coward, that he's running scared. But that will mostly happen within the bubble uh, and in a couple of days the world will move on and then he won't have to actually do the debate. Presumably the calculation is that that is less damaging than the possibility of doing a head-to-head debate with Ed Miliband about whom expectations are so low that he can only outperform them and wins by default. You say that, but I saw somebody tweeting last night, you know what happens actually if you just do a debate with a chair and there was a picture of Clint Eastwood and that chair at the Republican (laughs) National Convention. It's possible that Ed Miliband could lose to a chair. To be fair, that chair had some very good uh, ideas about gun control, I thought. (laughs) Um, Stephen, do do you think this is just a bubble story? Um... Yeah, I think it is. It's one of those things that I suspect most people, and I think about the people I talk to are you know not politically engaged, will kind of expect the debates to happen until they don't. On and about the May, May the sixth, they're like, oh, we didn't have debates this 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 time around. No, that's a weird. I thought they were a new thing. But then it'll be May the sixth, so it won't matter. Whereas, unless basically, if Ed can avoid becoming a meme during the debates, then he will exceed expectations. So, yeah, it's it's, it's grim, but I almost understand what Cameron's thinking. The odd thing is, is there seems to be this narrative which just caught hold at Westminster, which is that an as-you-are election suits Cameron. But actually, he's the one who doesn't have a viable coalition partner, it looks like, uh, isn't going to take enough seats from Labour to be in the box seat as far as coalition negotiations are concerned. So actually, 
what I think he might end up regretting is having the opportunity to take Miliband on. Because, yeah, there, there is a reason why Ed's uh, expectations are so low for his telly and radio performances. That's one of the things I find really interesting about the debate about Scotland, is there's this sort of kind of crowing that you get from the Tory side about how terribly Labour and the Lib Dems are doing in Scotland. And you kind of want to tap them on the shoulder and go... The only reason is you haven't you're not losing seats to the SNP is you, you've only got one seat to lose to the SNP. Like this is not a great vote of confidence in right wing politics. It just means that you you've already collapsed. Now everyone else is collapsing too. Yeah. I mean they are they are now partly huge disadvantaged by first past the post in Scotland, but it is strange to me that in nineteen ninety two they had twelve seats in Scotland, so that basically was the whole of their working majority. And um, in the last election, George Osborne's map of the United Kingdom didn't include Scotland. And now they've decided that it is good news for them if a party which not only hates them, but also hates the United Kingdom, which they're notionally meant to be for, gets elected. It feels like part of this whole sort of weird journey Cameron's gone on, where he stopped trying to think about why people don't vote Conservative. My favourite fact about the uh, Tory decline in Scotland is that in October 1974's election, which the Conservative Party lost, they had, I think, 18 seats in Glasgow. Sorry, in Scotland. Two of them were in Glasgow, one of which was later held by George Galloway. And the idea that a George Galloway seat could have been held by a Conservative basically within living memory seems absolutely crazy these days. I think that was the thing that came across really strongly during the referendum campaign was how much of that was driven by resentment and anger against a perceived, you know, Tory government. It was a, it was an anti-Tory vote partly driven by it, which puts the SNP in a difficult position, I guess, because you know, if the only viable way of making a majority government was the Tories and the SNP, I just don't see Stephen how they could ever ever sign up to that. Um yeah, I mean they they have kind of written this, themselves into this odd corner where I don't really see what they can really negotiate out of Ed Miliband because he can just turn to go, well, you're not you're not backing the Tories, are you? They could plausibly uh, effectively just divide the United Kingdom between themselves, you know, a much bigger offer of powers to Scotland, and they could then just not vote very often, uh, except on matters which relate directly to Scotland, which is basically what they do now. Um, so it may be and that's how they get round it, but it is a bit of a hospital pass for them. I wanted to just talk a little bit about, about polling because we've been, I've seen that particularly within the bubble, people have been getting very excited about a number of polls. There was a poll, for example, that put the Tories three points ahead. I think they were on 35, Labour on 32, and everyone went, oh, this is it, crossover month has happened. Um, you know, the Tories are ahead now. And it's, as far as I, I understand, it's all still within the margin of error. It's just that the margin of error is, is within that is looking more favourable to the Tories. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it pretty much is a matter of inches. Um, it could all turn out to be noise. It does seem like there is... I mean, basically, at the moment, it looks like if the election is held in 2020, the Conservatives will have a big enough lead to be the largest party. <laughs> but the movement is so small at the moment that you just kind of think, then, oh, does this matter? But it feeds into this idea that both uh, both parties have... That you know, Labour MPs are worried and Conservative MPs are cheery because they think that what will happen is people will see the whites of Ed Miliband's eyes and they will vote Conservative. I think also it does kind of there is a crippling lack of ambition from from both major parties, but I think it's it's worse for the Tories in that as we were just saying, you know, it's it's only a few elections ago that the Tories were a serious contender in Scotland, and they've lost that, and everyone's just kind of accepted that as an immutable fact to the universe, that the, score, the Tories cannot win seats in Scotland. And that is a pretty significant reason why they haven't got a majority now, and why they 
almost certainly won't get a majority in May. But they're not doing anything about it. They've just kind of accepted that. And they're hoping to sort of claw their way up to 34, 35% and stop Miliband from getting over the line. It's but very odd. I also think there's a point about the... Because the, we always have this conversation about how much does representation matter? How much does having a more diverse range of people in politics matter? I think that one of the really big problems about having party the three main party leaders be all very much the same type of bloke is that that personifies people's feeling that they are essentially interchangeable and that's what motivates people to say it's all what am i what am i really voting for even where you can kind of explain that the policy actually if you look start to look at some of the policies there are some interesting policies there the visions don't seem that different and that's made sort of flesh in the fact that they all look you know you could they all dress the same they've all got the same hair they're just yeah They've all had these sort of cardboard cut-out Westminster bubble careers. Yeah. yeah. You kind of feel that, I, you know, I think I'm right saying neither Miliband or Cameron has ever gone for a job interview where they haven't known the person who was interviewing them beforehand for one reason or another. And I think that, yeah, because there is yeah, a fairly large gulf now between Labour and the Conservative Party, but I think what most people feel when they hear or see them is here are two people who've never really struggled, who when they talk about shared sacrifices and burden sharing think that it's not you who's sharing any burdens. It's not you who worries about, you know, what happens if I can't make the mortgage. And it does kind of feed into this, I'll vote UKIP, I'll vote Green, I'll vote SNP. I felt that really strongly at the um, press gallery uh, dinner that there was a couple of weeks ago, actually, when the, the, uh, James Zandale of the BBC was talking about Band and he was sort of talking about the fact that he uh, had an experience of, of TV because he'd gone for this job working for, a, I think it was like version of LBC, sort of a kind of London radio station. And I thought, that's a really weird kind of like summer job to have. Like, you know, what was... I would kind of... I just sort of wish that when they, they'd worked behind the bar, you know, and or... They'd worked in a taxi firm or they'd worked in a, you know, on the checkout at Sainsbury's. But in their different ways, both Cameron and Miliband both had very insidery kind of kind of lives where I don't know if they've ever done a job that was just where they were just a sort of pile of flesh that was moving things around. And that's a very particular kind of experience. But this, I think conversations like this kind of slip over all too easily into that kind of cynicism where, you know, where left-wing politicians, rich left-wing politicians who want to raise their own taxes are sort of accused of hypocrisy for it, mm. despite the fact that's that's the exact opposite of hypocrisy. But because, like, the, you, there is this odd sort of feeling well, that you, the, because someone's not representing their own class interest, they are trying to do something for a different type of person, that we're kind of equally cynical about that as we are about people who are utterly shamelessly about you know, trying to keep their own taxes down. I think that's very odd. The thing is, I think that the problem with particularly, because obviously Cameron's problem that he's seen as rich and costed, yeah, it feeds into wider fears about the Conservative Party. I think in the case of Ed, the big problem that you kind of feel like he's never had a job where he's regarded every hour as, well, that's, thank God that's another hour and I can mm. spe- of money I can spend on something fun and I can't wait for the weekend or my day off, is one of the reasons why some of his language... Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. 
language around tax, I feel it's the kind of thing is much easier to say in a job you love mm. um, than it is where you are someone who literally goes, thank God, oh, here's my paycheck. Well, that's why I've suffered through this horrendous experience. And the, yeah, the, the big fear people still have about Labour government is they get in and the taxes go up. Um, and I suspect Ed would be able to reassure people a bit more about that without any policy shift if he just sounded a bit like he, he understood that for most people work is a bit tedious. I um, think that was exactly the point I got because I, I, it, it brought me back to it. So, I, yeah, I used to work in a, in a stationery shop and then the worst, probably the worst job I ever had is I used to work on burger vans. And um, you would come home at the end of the day and you would just, like, bacon had seeped into, like, every pore and... I know. I used to go and put my stuff in the in the utility room, and anybody who walked past it would just be like, "What's that? Oh my god!" Because it just smelled like something abhorrent had happened to a pig around you for the next twelve hours. And I got my money at the end of that, and it just and it didn't seem because it wasn't that much because it was a minimum wage. And I thought, God, I really work for that. Whereas now, I I have I'm, I'm very lucky to have a job that I love, and I have a financial security around that. But it's a very different experience, like you say, of just knowing that you've really. Tor- not like torture yourself, you know, you really hated every hour of, of, of that you've spent earning that money. You have a very different relationship to it, I think. I'd rather you weren't talking about bacon right now, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's your only... That's getting, your case getting off topic thought. a little bit there. Um, <laughs> well, let's say that um, John can run and have a, a bacon sandwich, hopefully not accompanied by photographers. Uh, I'll say thank you very much to both John and Stephen. Let's talk about evolution now. Um, scientists have discovered what they're calling the jawbone of the first human. It uh, moves back this uh, story of human history a little bit further back than we previously thought. I'm not great at explaining this, so I'm going to hand over to um, Tozin Thompson, who's our Welcome Scholar, and Ian Stedman, our science writer, to explain this. So, Tozin, tell me, first of all, I've seen the photo of it. Mm. It's not the most mm. overwhelming fossil. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. got nothing on a kind of huge mm. diplodocus, but why is it so important? It's, well... It was found founded by an Ethiopian student from a research centre and it was sort of found in a way by accident because he was very, very surprised when he found it. And what it is, it's, just, it's a left jaw, which I think has five teeth on it and it, it's apparently it dates back to 2.8 million years, which then pushes our, you know, our origin back to four, well, by four, 400,000 years years so the previous so skeleton just... we had was this one known as, as lucy who was kind of mm. always mm. Uh, down to be the first human where in does this uh, fossil fall in relation to lucy well physically it was found in the same area as lucy was found um but it's well lucy was uh, an australopithecus which is kind of that these are hominids which are they're kind of the apes that became us or they might not be because when you go back that far you have um, the famous missing links where you have stuff that looks kind of human and then you have stuff later that also looks kind of human and you have to kind of draw a line between it and go, it's probably us. So with a jaw, you can't really figure out exactly everything about it. Um, But a jaw is also still one of the most useful things you can find when it comes to hominid fossils because the, the types and shapes of teeth can tell you a huge amount about the kind of the diet it had, the likely size of the individual. Um, and whether it is just another ape or whether it is actually a hominid. And it has teeth that are kind of the sort of shape that we see uh, the apes that became us have rather than the apes that are now still apes. I'm so tempted to ask you the creationist question of like, 
Why aren't chimps still evolving into humans? No, they are evolving. They're not evolving <laughs> into humans. <laughs> I know. It's one of those things, yeah. isn't it, where it's, it, we have to go back at some point to a, to a common ancestor yeah. that we, but, uh, we all share. You, you do raise a point about, like, what is it that makes something go, well, the chimps are still in the trees, and we became the things that walked upright. And, and the kind of prevailing theory at the moment is that it was climate change that caused it, where you had jungles that turned into savannah and grassland, and when you're in a jungle being able to sort of swing around and hunch down is really useful but when you're in a savannah you want to be able to speak you know uh, uh, stand up above the the grass and look around and make sure nothing's coming um and and this fossil kind of lends credence to that because there's other environmental evidence and so it raises another interesting point about kind of the point of science really doesn't it which is that Everybody's been, you know, uh, Lucy was found a, a, quite a long time ago now. Well, and like 3.2 uh, million? Yeah. It was and, dated back anyways. It was probably found in the 1970s. Yeah, 1974. And then, uh, and that's been the kind of accepted story. Mm. But just one single discovery means mm. that everybody has to go back. Everything is... And one of the important things about science, I guess, is that not being precious about your pet theory mm. which is quite an important lesson yeah, for I those liked, of us who I aren't scientists the, i like that's why i like science it doesn't claim that it has all the answers it's able to you know based on you know recent findings you know go back to the scratch board and change these conventional ideas that they once had about so-and-so things such as um you know our history and where we date back from and i think this is this is really interesting because it just queries our origin in the sense that were there various other species that were similar to humans, which potentially died out and then brought about this, hobbits? Yeah, brought mm. about Homo sapiens that you know are now alive and prevailing. Yeah, and it also brings about this notion that do our do our teeth and our bigger brains and our long legs are they are they attributing to our success, or was it was it or, you know a combination of all those traits that do so? So I think with this, it just emphasises that there's a lot to learn about our ancestry and where we come from. Mm. And also that we're descended from a really long line of, of winners, in the sense, and that mm. you, you, we can reconstruct what happened to us, maybe, because you know we have ourselves as evidence, but it's much harder to, to look at all those. So the one I mentioned, Hobbits, is um, Homo floresiensis, which was... Floresiensis. Yeah. Because the island's Flores, I think. But yes. Um, and they're little little fellows. Little, little, yeah, they're, they're, they're the kind of Hobbits that... Well, not Hobbits, the... Um, I, I can't remember the term, but there is a local legend uh, there about um, sort of four foot tall human like people, um, which for a long time uh, anthropologists thought was just like, oh, it's similar to like trolls in European mythology. But no, it, it, there's, a, there's a strong chance that it's just the oral culture of like there used to be two types of human. Mm. Um, and that's, yeah, you know, science of hominids and our ancestry is really interesting because. There has been so much over the last sort of decade that has challenged the the old view of, well, there were Homo sapiens, they evolved in Africa, and they left Africa, and that's us. Because we, we knew about Neanderthals, but now we know that it's likely that Neanderthals, not only, like, we didn't kill them off, but we probably just interbred with them until they just weren't a separate thing anymore. They just absorbed into Homo sapiens. Aren't you, like, 1% Neanderthal? I'm 2.8% Neanderthal. Yeah, he's uh, According to a genetic <laughs> test I took, um, every, wow. every human on the planet, only Homo sapiens on the planet, is uh, between, uh, like, I don't know you say every Homo sapiens on the planet. Like, there might be a few Neanderthals sort of <laughs> knocking about. Hey, there might be a cave yes. somewhere with some Homo floresiensis on in them. You know, um, probably not. It's really, really, really unlikely. amazing. But these, these legends there, um, they, they claim that they died out about 400 years ago. That's the last time anyone remembers seeing them, or, or like the last time anyone remembers being told that it was seen. So, 
But equally well, it was only in the kind of it was only in the sixties or seventies that the last kind of uncontacted tribe who turned out to be living exactly in the sort of Stone Age there practices. There are still some uncontacted, and there tribes. are now tribes yeah. that have rejected being contacted. There's a there's an extremely moving story. Uh, I believe it was in Nature, but I'm prepared to be corrected on that. About the last member of a tribe in the Amazon, who um, there is a dedicated ministry in Brazil that's job it is to make sure that uncontacted tribes, you know, don't get stay uncontacted. Yeah, like unless yeah. they they make the efforts themselves to come forward, then they stay uncontacted. But um, logging companies just like they move forward and they'll do what they want. And there was this one guy, they knew of a village, then they came back to the village a few years later, and it had been raised to the ground by a logging company. But they they realized there was one guy left he was the only guy left from this village and he's been living out in the amazon by himself and every time they, they try to find him because he's on his own like he has no there is no culture that he comes from anymore there is no history that he has he's the last of his kind um and he's just been running around occasionally firing arrows at logging loggers and government um representatives trying to find him but um he's having a very lonely experience that's really that's it's very funny. it's very very Moving. That's yeah. very moving. I always feel the same about you have um, people who are the last speaker of their language. Yes. And eventually it happens to that you've got nobody that you can ever share that, mm. that language with. And I suppose this is all a reflection on the fact that, you know, we are the, the, the species that has caused the most extinctions. And, and actually one of the things we're causing extinctions of our, are sometimes our own cultures. Yeah, we're not and, great, are we? And our own, <laughs> and, and, and subtribes within us. But um, yeah, if you want to find out more about this, um, there's some, some great articles online and there's a great picture of the jawbone, which I have to say is not the most impressive <laughs> yeah. picture you've ever seen, but rest assured that it is very important. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.